This week, we're in the Bahamas with Sir Richard Branson. I'd been trying to book Sir Richard, or Richard as he likes to go by for an episode taping for five plus years. Every time I would reach out to his rep, they said, look, maybe we'd give you 15, 20 minutes, but Richard just does not sit down for the amount of time you're looking to get. It was always the, the same conversation. And I just so happened to be in uh, Europe in late October, one year for work, had a couple days to kill before needing to be uh, back in the States. And I like hiking, realized North Africa was only a few hour flight from where I was. So I thought I'll go there, guaranteed good weather. Was looking for a place to stay. Richard Branson has these lodges or hotels all over the world that people can stay at. So I'm thinking, all right, I'll stay there for the two days before flying home. First day I'm there, unbeknownst to me, I'm walking back from breakfast and there I see Sir Richard Branson sprawled out on a lounge chair, playing around on his iPad and my heart is pounding at this point. I have been, you know, trying to book this guy for years. This is my shot. Nobody's around him. I gotta go up and say something. So I go up, introduce myself. He ends up inviting me to play tennis with him, chess with him. Him and his personal assistant invite me to dinner and drinks that night. And then a month later, we're in the Bahamas spending the better portion of a week with Sir Richard Branson taping this episode of the show. The business tycoon adventurer and founder of Virgin Group details some challenges along the way to billionaire status. The head of British Airways you know, came out with a sort of uh, caustic comment, too young to fly, too old to rock and roll, uh, they're never going to succeed. Reflects on his optimistic mindset. I think out of being just a generally positive person, you can make positive things happen. And lessons learned from even the most difficult days. Test pilots are incredibly brave. You know, by pushing themselves to the limit, that particular incident will never happen again. Plus, you'll hear some never-before-released content from the 2018 interview. We kick things off, though, with Branson really illustrating his passion for pushing the limits. So I wanted to start off by talking to you about adventure. That's obviously been such a key part of your life, uh, notably some of your record-setting uh, balloon expeditions. And I wanted to um, take you back to a, a time when all of a sudden you unexpectedly lose two full fuel tanks and climb perilously high. Um, what could have happened if the balloon continued elevating and what are you thinking at the time? It wouldn't have been very pretty. Um, they, uh, if the balloon had just carried on going up, which it looked for a horrible moment that it was going to do, the capsule would have Im imploded and I wouldn't have seen, seen or got, got to know my grandchildren. So, um, so that, you know, you know, it's a strange thing when, when, you, when you embark on these wonderful adventures, you know, trying to do something that, you know, mankind has, uh, and womankind has never managed to achieve before. Um, uh, you think, you know, you thought of everything, um, uh, but, but just because it hasn't been done before, uh, there are things that go wrong that, you know, that, that, that um, you never expected to go wrong. On that particular crossing, when we were trying to be the first to cross the Pacific in a hot air balloon, it, on paper, you know, when, when, when we lost the fuel tanks, uh, it looked like we didn't have a chance to survive. I mean, I mean it, you know, the chances were, you know, less than 1%. We needed, an, we needed a miracle um, to survive. We knew that we'd have to go at speeds of over 200 miles an hour, and a balloon had never been faster than, you know, 80, 80 miles an hour at the very, very, very fastest, and that was when we did the Atlantic. We managed to fly it right into the core of the jet stream, um, you know, like it, this, the equivalent of being right in the middle of a river when you've, you know, you've thrown a, a stick in the river and you've got the absolute fastest stream. And I just suddenly saw the speedometer going, you know, 100 miles, 110, 120, 130, 140, 150, 160, 170, 180, 200, 210, 220, 230. And we were in a balloon. We we're traveling at 230 miles an hour. And at that speed, if we could keep up that speed, we had a chance of making land and, and a chance of survival. Um, and um, we were aiming for Los Angeles. We missed Los Angeles by nearly two and a half thousand miles. <laughs> we, we, we ended up in the Arctic on a frozen lake, uh, 800 miles from the nearest uh, person. The only thing that saw us was an otter that came up and gave us a sniff and 
and then just walked off. And um, uh, but we were the first across the Pacific in a hot air balloon, and um, and we'd survived. So. Uh, we'd live to tell the tale. Uh, another moment, you hadn't slept for more than 24 hours, uh, and your captain jumps going 100 feet down into the freezing ocean. Take it from there. You know, our first balloon flight was to try to be the first people to cross the Atlantic in a hot air balloon, and Pear had thrown an explosive bolt and had been worried that the cables were cut most of the way through, but not the whole way through. So uh, he threw himself out of the uh, capsule into the sea. And because his weight had gone, and, and he wasn't a light, a light man, the, the balloon just soared, soared back up into the air, um, you know, 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 feet through the clouds. And I was standing on top of the balloon as it went up. And um, I'd only just learned to fly a balloon three weeks before. <laughs> And there was, you know, the, my, my experienced balloonist was now no longer with me. And you're in the biggest balloon in, ever. In the biggest balloon ever flown. Uh, and I was in trouble. And I climbed back into the capsule and, um, you know, I, I didn't think I had a lot of chance of survival. So I, I wrote a, um, a, a, a short note to Holly, Holly, Sam and my wife and uh, telling them how much I loved them. and. Um, then I put my parachute on, um, put a life vest on, climbed back on top of the capsule and prepared to jump. And I knew this was the last you know, few moments of my life. And um, you know, I mean, to be a parachutist jumping into the North Sea where it's freezing cold, never, jump, never done a parachute jump into water before. I'd lost all communication with the outside world, so nobody knew, you know, knew where I was. Um, and so the chances of survival were yeah, very, very, very unlikely. And, and I was looking down at the clouds, and, and I, because I knew that, the, I mean, the fuel was almost finished, uh, but I, I knew I had about another 20 minutes of fuel on board. And I decided just to, you know, before I jumped, you know, just to have another five minutes of life. So I climbed back into the capsule, and, and I also wanted some thinking time. And, um, and as I was climbing back out of the capsule, I looked up and, uh, and I saw the balloon and I thought, screw it, I've got the biggest, you know, the biggest parachute in, in the whole world right above me. The balloon is the parachute. What on earth am I doing? Uh, and it sounds sort of simple looking, thinking back, back at it now. But anyway, so I then got back into the capsule and I just started burning um, and, and taking the balloon down towards the sea. About 100 feet before I hit the sea, I climbed back onto the top and just before it hit the sea, I threw myself off the capsule. Um, away from the capsule, and the capsule hit the water, and then the, the, whole, the balloon, without my weight, you know, soared back up to 10,000 feet, and, and there I was in the sea. Um, but I am a lucky, uh, a, a jammy bastard, as they say in England. Um, I had arrived in the sea, and a military navy helicopter exercise was going on uh, at exactly that time, and one of those helicopters saw me jump and, um, and within four or five minutes, there was a helicopter dropping a rope down to me to, to hold on to. And, um, and they yanked me to safety, and, and we then were able to go and rescue, rescue Pear. What do you remember from having to once negotiate midair with the Chinese, um, and how that strangely then resulted in Virgin being granted rights to commercially fly to China? So we were attempting to fly around the world in a hot air balloon. We'd done the Atlantic, we'd done the Pacific. Um, to fly around the world in a hot air balloon was gonna take about 18 days. Uh, we, we took off from Morocco um, and uh, we um, headed across the Mediterranean. Uh, we skirted Iraq and as we were skirting Iraq, um, there were American planes coming in to, to bomb Iraq and we were wishing, they were wishing us good luck, we were wishing them good luck, and we, we, we then carried on um, over Kazakhstan and you know, some of the sort of the, the remote places. And then we got sucked into the um, Himalaya chain. Um, and it, it was beautiful, um, but we were going where we weren't meant to go, and that was towards China. The Chinese made it clear to us that if we came into Chinese territory, they would have to shoot us down. <laughs> um, 
And so as we got closer and closer to China, um, you know, I was getting on the phone and, you know, to everybody I knew in Hong Kong to ask them to, you know, Cathay Pacific and, um, you know, the, the British ambassador in China and, uh, you know, asking them to try to intervene with the Chinese and wasn't getting far. And, um, and then I rang up my secretary at the time and I said, um, can, you, uh, can you ring Downing Street so I can talk to Tony Blair? And, um, and she said, um, I, I don't have the number of Downing Street. And, and, and I was getting very tired by now and I just said, dial 192 directory inquiries and ask please for the number of Downing Street. Anyway, I remember it distinctly. I don't, don't like to behave like that, but anyway, I did. And um, anyway, then Tony Blair intervened and, um, and finally the Chinese, just before we get, went into Ch you know, you know, Chinese territory, um, they said um, you know, that, 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 that we had to get, get through Chinese territory quickly and get out of Chinese territory and they wouldn't shoot us down. And, um, and the bizarre irony was that as we flew over Shanghai, I got another email from our airline saying, you won't believe this, but the Chinese authorities have just given Virgin Atlantic permission to fly to, Sh to Shanghai. And we've been trying for years to get permission. So a few minutes ago, they were planning to shoot us down. Now, Virgin Atlantic had been given rights to fly to Shanghai. And, um, and I'm not sure whether it was coincidence or whether they'd taken pity on us and <laughs> decided that actually it was quite an adventure after all. Your first real business uh, student magazine, uh, how would you go about uh, using a company's competitors to get advertising? Well, I was working out of the school phone box uh, and you know, in, in those days you had to put money into the phone box uh, in order to keep, keep the phone calls going. Uh, and, early, and early on I put some money in and I got cut off. So I rang up the operator and I said, um, uh, operator, I've been cut off and I put some money in the box. And they went, oh, no problem, so we'll just put you through. I thought, well, that's good. And so I would keep ringing the operator and saying I've been cut off and they would keep putting me through. So now I had my own secretary working for me, which was the British Telecom operator, uh, and I wasn't paying for the phone calls. Um, and then I sort of started to learn from trying to sell advertising in order to get the magazine going. I didn't have any money. I needed to sell £4,000 worth of advertising to cover the printing and the paper costs. I learned early on that if you said to Coke, that Pepsi you know, were interested in taking an ad, that they would jump in and say, oh, well, we better take an ad too. If you said to National Westminster Bank that Barclays were interested in taking an ad, then they would jump in. So, um, so I learned the art of bulls as we call this in England, quite early on, and uh, ended up having you know, Pepsi and Coke because, you know, and, and the National Westminster Bank and Barclays. And um, had a, you know, managed to get enough advertising to pay for the printing and the paper of 50,000 magazines. And the headmaster said to me, you know, you either stay at school and do your schoolwork or you can leave the school and do your magazine. And so I said, you know, just turning 16 and I'm off, thank you very much. And, um, and, I, left, and I left school. Why when journalists would come to visit you to do stories on you, would you make the phones ring off the hook? We, I would have people downstairs uh, the journalists would be doing interviews and, and yeah, and I, I mean, it was going to be a very dull interview unless I could get some excitement going. So my phone started ringing and um, oh, there's Mick Jagger on that phone. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, when you're, when you're building a company without any financial backing from scratch, you need to make it a little sexier than it, than it really is. And, and uh, in those early days, we, we, we just threw everything we could at trying to make it succeed. So you get an interview with John Lennon. Um, explain why you ultimately hired a lawyer to threaten to sue uh, and what ended up happening? Um, so, uh, so Derek Taylor, who managed um, the Beatles, um, uh, um, uh, had promised us, after I'd done an interview with John Lennon and it had all gone very well, uh, that for the first issue of the magazine, we'd have a John Lennon and Yoko Ono single on the, on the front cover of the magazine. Um, and so we had Alan Aldridge do beautiful artwork around it. We had 50,000 copies printed up. And um, they somehow forgot to do the single. So 
so they decided, they, they, they said, well, we have an idea. So I, I went turned up at Apple's headquarters and John and Yoko were there and Derek was there and they played the record that they were going to give us and then Yoko and her burst into tears and uh, and I said well you know what what exactly is it and they said oh it's um, the, the heartbeat of Yoko and his dead baby that that had had, um, had, had died and um, uh, and that's all it was it was just boom 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 for you know for four minutes and um, and I said, it's not really, it's not really what we were expecting. Um, and um, I suspect, foolishly, you know, decided not to, not to go with it. I, I, I mean, I just think people might have felt a bit cheated. Um, but, um, and, uh, and we, we sent a couple of legal letters saying, could you please give us, um, uh, give us a, uh, you know, you know get, get, get us a proper record. And it didn't, it wasn't forthcoming. And then I just I wrote to Derek Taylor and just said, look, we'll 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 survive without it. And Derek wrote me a note saying, you know, thanks, Richard. All 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 everybody needs is love. And 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 we called it a day. Um, uh, but we had to we had to uh, you know we had to get rid of fifty thousand magazines without a without that cover, and and that set us back quite quite a lot at the time. Uh, much later on in your career, you call up uh, the Rolling Stones manager. Um, what did he say to you that you almost took as a challenge? And it, it seemed like it was... Um, yeah, so Prince Rupert was the Rolling Stones manager. We had a record label at the time. Uh, and, uh, and I've always wanted to sign the Rolling Stones. And, uh, and, um, and their contract was available. And, I can't remember the exact figure, but I mean, he said, right, if you can get me six million by Monday, um, uh, you know, I, I, I would seriously consider doing a deal with you. And he was only getting three million from other, other people. So this was on a Thursday. So I then flew off to Germany, to France, to Italy, to you know, as many countries as I could over the weekend, um, getting pledges of money from all these different territories. And, um, and on the Monday, I, I rang him up and said, you know, we, ha we have your six million. And, um, and what he did, which was, you know, was fair enough, he just went to EMI and, and, and got them to increase their three million to six million. Um, and, um, but in the end, after a few years later, when, when their contract came up again, um, uh, he took mercy on me and, um, and by then, Virgin Records was the most successful independent record label in the world. You know, we had, you know, Janet Jackson, we had um, Culture Club and Genesis and Phil Collins, and anyway, it was it was really really going great guns. And um, uh, and um, and we we signed the Rolling Stones, and um, and it was a yeah great a, a great a great. Um, yeah, a great turning point for the record company. You've said before the easiest way to become a millionaire is to start as a billionaire and buy an airline. Uh, what do your partners say to you when you come to them with the idea to start your own airline and when they realized you were actually serious? Well, Simon Draper, who ran the record label with me, um, basically said that, um, uh, that if I went into the airline business, our friendship would have to end or, or, and, and that you know, we could we could no longer work, work together. Because uh, he, he just thought I, I mean, he thought he should he should ring up and get the white coats to come and take me away and have me locked up. Because, you know, what on earth is somebody who's in the uh, in the entertainment business doing, wanting to start an airline? I was I'd I, I'd had a um, a bad experience. I, I'd been trying to get to see my lovely lady in the Virgin Islands. Um, and um, we'd been bump, bumped um, by American Airlines. I was in Puerto Rico. And, um, and it was six o'clock one evening, and I was determined to get to see her. I was about 28 years old. I went to the back of the airport, and I borrowed a blackboard. I hired a plane. I wrote as a joke, Virgin Airlines, one way, $39 to, to the BVI. And I went around all the people who'd been bumped with me, and I filled up my first plane. And, um, 
And when we got to, uh, when we got to the Virgin Islands that night, um, you know, it was the next day I rang up Boeing and said, do you have any secondhand 747s for sale? I mean, the reason I think my partners were wrong was traveling on airlines in those days was abysmal. I mean, they, they would dump a bit of cold chicken on your lap. There was no entertainment. Uh, the cabin crew didn't smile because they were treated so badly. Um, the planes were old and run down. Um, and so, you know, bring somebody in from the entertainment world and liven it up and make it, make it, um, make it a wonderful experience. And, um, yeah, but I'm sure they're rightly thinking, what do you know about an airline? You're a uh, music guy. Yeah, and, and the head of British Airways, you know, came out with a sort of uh, caustic comment, you know, uh, too young to fly, too old to rock and roll. Uh, they're never going to succeed. And um, funny enough, though, uh, pr you know, soon enough, you ha had them pretty concerned. Um, wh what made you realize somebody was messing with your airline and starting to create problems for you? So we had about three or four planes after two or three years, and British Airways uh, launched what, what became famously known as the British Airways Dirty Tricks campaign, and it, and it was a kneecapping job to try to put Virgin Atlantic uh, out of business completely. And we learned about what they were up to from people who actually worked for British Airways who were really embarrassed to be working for a company that behaved in this way. So, you know, for instance, they would have a team of people behind locked doors at British Airways who would be ringing up our passengers, pretending to be from Virgin Atlantic, uh, telling our passengers that the uh, Virgin flight was delayed and then switching them on to British Airways. Um, they had people intercepting our passengers at the airport and switching them on to British Airways. They had teams of people going through my rubbish bins and, and if there was a journalist that I'd talked to, they would be going through the journalist rubbish bins. Um, they, had they had people, go we had a, a gay nightclub in London and they would go through the, the rubbish bins there to see if they could find any needles or you know, any, any signs of drugs and then report, report it to the, the newspaper. And then they would be trying to you know, disparage our finances and so on in the press. So, uh, but fortunately, you know, they denied all this. Uh, what was the point in which you realized you had to take them to court? The, the, the amount of uh, rumors they were managing to get the press to write about was becoming very dangerous and very damaging. You know, if the press write, that, you know, write about um, an airline and say that it's you know, on the verge of bankruptcy or something, it, you know, it can actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy. When they denied all this, we sued them for libel, and we ended up winning the largest libel damages in, in um, British history. Um, uh, it was Christmas time, um, so we distributed them to all our staff equally, and it became known as the British Airways Christmas bonus, and all our staff were very, very happy, and, and, and it was such a big you know, reward against British Airways that it, it really did shut them up, and, and, and from then on, yeah, we've had lots of competition over the last um, 35 years, but it's been, you know, basically, you know, re relatively fair competition, not the sort of dirty tricks sort of competition. Lord King, who was the infamous head of British Airways, what did your interaction with him entail when you guys ran into each other after your victory in court? Um, yeah, he wasn't best pleased, and actually he ended up stepping down from British Airways um, because of your victory, because basically, of, because, right. because of our victory. And um, but you know, I think what it what it illustrates is is your reputation is all you have in life, and you just got to be very careful not to um, yeah not to not not to destroy that reputation, and um, by you know by doing something that is you know, verging on illegal. I mean, you know, arguably was it was illegal. You end up selling your music business for a billion US dollars um, in effort to fight off uh, British Airways during their attack, um, while for a lot of money, very painful for you, um, not something you wanted to do. What's the likelihood looking back that you could have fought off British Airways without having sold the business, you think? Uh, it's a good question, and I suspect we, we, I suspect we may have just got away with it, um, but it was a hell of a risk, um, and 
you know, if we'd failed to get away with it, we could have brought both companies, our record company and our airline, crashing down. So by, by selling the record company, the jobs in the record company were secure. Um, it still has the Virgin, you know, the Virgin brand on it. It's still the most successful record label in, in, uh, uh, in Britain, and maybe even in the world at the moment. And, um, uh, and, uh, and, the, and all the jobs at the airline were secure as well. So I think it was the right decision. Um, it gave us the financial muscle to not only combat British Airways, but also to move Virgin into uh, a whole, uh, you know, whole mass of new areas, and um, and Virgin became a sort of way of life brand, and became very exciting as a result of us having the, the resources to do it. What got you interested in space, uh, and uh, allowing private citizens to travel to space uh, to begin with? A long time ago, just as Perestroika was happening in Russia. Um, uh, I got a telephone call and I was told that President Gorbachev was on the phone, um, uh, who was president of Russia at the time, and he invited me to go up on a Russian spaceship, not for free, um, for a, something like uh, you know, 40 or 50 million dollars, um, but nobody else had ever been, no, no private citizen had ever been to space, and, and I, you know, I might have been able to just about pull that money together, but I felt it would be perceived as being a waste of money for you know one individual to to go to space, and, that I, and I felt that I could put put that money to better use. So um, so I said no. Um, but it did it did get me thinking, and that was you know why not spend that kind of money building our own space line one day? And I didn't do it right away. I, w I waited to see whether. Uh, the American government or the Chinese government or the Russian government, whether they'd be interested in putting uh, you or me or people watching this program into space. And it soon became apparent they had no interest in that whatsoever. And um, yeah, so in the 1990s, I registered the name Virgin Galactic Airways. I'm, I'm an optimist. I also registered the name Virgin Intergalactic Airways. <laughs> um, and um, and we, we, we went out looking for a genius who could build a spaceship for us, and, and we were lucky enough to um, come across Bert Rutar, who is, was that genius and is that genius, uh, and he got, you know, he got building a spaceship for us. And um, it's taken ten years to get to, you know, to get to where we are today. Um, we are literally months, months away, I think, from um, the space line be, you know, beginning operations, and we're months away from myself. And um, you know, and my you know grown-up kids going into space, and then we're, we're months away from you know from the, the sort of 750 people who've signed up, you know, starting to go into space. So you know, it's tremendously exciting. Um, it's been you know we've had uh, uh, high moments, we've had tears, um, you know. So that will be you know that would be the culmination, I suppose, of. Um, years of, a, of doing adventures, um, you know, the day that strapped myself into a seat and, um, and, and head off on Virgin Galactic into space. And, you know, the, 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 um, uh, there's one moment in that journey where you go from naught miles an hour to over 3,000 miles an hour in seven seconds, and that's going to be some rush. <laughs> and, um, uh, and um, and then, you know, when you actually go into space, the, the sudden hush uh, from the roar of the engines to complete, complete tranquility uh, and being able to unbuckle and um, float around, look out through these beautiful windows uh, back, at, back at the Earth. Um, and um, uh, and uh, it, it's been a long time coming, um, but... Um, you know, we're, 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 we, we, we all believe that we're just about there now. Explain the significance of winning your first military contract. We, we have Virgin Galactic, which is putting um, yeah, people into space. Uh, we also have Virgin Orbit, right. which is putting um, satellites into space. And, um, and, and Virgin Orbit has, um, uh, has won quite a number of contracts recently, including uh, Department of Defense contracts from the American government 
Uh, and and the, the exciting thing about that is it shows a, you know, a faith in what the team at Virgin Orbit and Virgin Galactic are doing to have such a reputable organization actually make an order from us. How do you balance the desire to pursue extraordinary achievement with the inherent risk associated with that? Um, test pilots are uh, incredibly brave. Um, their, their job is to test a craft uh, to its limits to find out you know, the, all the sort of things that could potentially go wrong, which is very difficult to find out on the ground before it actually goes in the air. And, um, and, and test pilots can make a mistake because, um, uh, you know, because they're, again, testing something for the first time. You know, we had um, the, the incredibly unfortunate incident uh, which um, you know, where, where, where a test pilot did lose their life and where the program was set back, you know, by nearly three, three years. But, you know, by, you know, by pushing themselves to the limit, you know, that, that, that particular incident will never happen again. And the program will be that much more inherently safe when, by the time we actually finally get pass, passengers to fly. You know, we had to ask ourselves after the accident, you know, uh, you know is it worth it? Um, we asked the 750 people who'd signed up to go to space, you know, did they feel we should push on? Uh, almost with one voice, they said we should. We asked the 700 engineers that work for us, did they want to push on? They, 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 with one voice, they said they did. Um, and I think, you know, most of the public, you know, wanted us to push on. And, um, you know, so we actually, you know, took all the business in-house. We're using another company's test pilots. We're using another company to build the spaceship now. You know, everything, everything is in-house. We've got our own test pilots. Um, we've got our own engineers. Uh, and we feel, we, you know, we, we feel it's extremely unlikely that, we, that we'll have a repeat of what happened. But you can never, you can never be sure when you're going through a test, a test program. Um, safety, obviously, is so important to you. You know, when your train company had a crash many years ago that was solely the fault of the, the track, had nothing to do with the train company. So what's it like for you getting a call like that when there's been loss of life? Uh, it, it, it's happened to me twice in my lifetime. And, uh, and, I've, you know, and one of the positive things is we've, we've, we've got three airlines flying millions and millions of passengers for 35 years, and, and we've never had such a call. So, um, so it's happened you know, once, once when a train went off its tracks. Um, and obviously with Virgin Galactic. And, um, uh, and I mean, I, with Virgin Trains, I was um, in a cinema in Zermatt with my children and I, this vibrating phone just kept going in my pocket. And, you know, um, generally speaking, I don't answer the phones, but there was just something about the, the consistency of the vibration that made me uh, look at the phone. And, um, uh, and the moment I knew that we'd, you know, the, the train had come off the tracks. You know, I knew that the first thing you've got to do as an owner of a company, whether it's your fault or not, is just get, you know, get to the scene of the accident. And, and, um, and that's what I did. I drove through the night. You couldn't, I couldn't get a plane. At, 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 you know, the airport was closed. Um, and um, got to the, um, the scene of the accident first thing in the morning. Um, and there was an elderly lady that had been killed. And, um, and I went to the morgue to meet her children, and um, and we all had a big hug, and um, uh, and then I went, to, you know, to to meet the press in the field, and and um, uh, and I think, you know, if you, uh, you know, I think all, that anybody who runs a company, if the, if if there's a bad incident, the the critical thing is, you know, con confronted head on, um, uh, and. Um, anybody who's affected by it, make sure that um, you're there to comfort them. What would you say has been your biggest failure over the years and what do you think you most learned from it? I suspect the um, most notable failure has been uh, not knocking Coca-Cola off their pedestal. Um, Virgin a, Cola? Virgin Cola. We had, a, we had a good try. For a year or two, it looked like we were going to take Coke for everything they had. Uh, we were out selling them in, in Britain, in, in all, all the retailers that we were stocked, and we were out selling Pepsi. I then got a bit too big 
for my boots and I arrived in Times Square with a Sherman tank from Britain. I crushed all these Coke, Coke and Cola um, and Pepsi uh, cans. You know, cola was flying everywhere. And um, I then turned our Sherman tank's turret onto the Coca-Cola sign in the middle of Times Square. Uh, anyway, Coke didn't take that too kindly. <laughs> Uh, and um, the, the next day uh, in Atlanta headquarters, they got um, bagfuls of suitcases of money. Uh, they got a DC-10 on the, on the runway at Atlanta. They filled it with squat teams. They arrived in England and uh, retailers um, suddenly became very wealthy and all our Virgin Cola disappeared off, off the shelves. And they basically kneecapped us. For, for real? Kneecapped I, us. Yeah. I mean, it was that no, quick. No, no they, kneecapped, they kneecapped us, I mean, very, very systematically. And we did not know this was going on. I mean, they, you know, I would ring up Tesco's and say, what are you doing? You've taken Virgin Cola off all the shelves. And um, they would say, I don't know, they would come up with some excuse. But um, so it wasn't until about a year later that um, the, a, a lady arrived who announced to me that she was the new manager of Virgin Group at Lloyd's Bank and she, we went out to dinner and it turned out that she was the lady at Coke at the time who'd been in charge of the kneecapping exercise and now she was my bank manager and I wasn't sure whether to strangle her or not. <laughs> you said before, uh, real leaders see opportunities where others only see challenges. Explain that. I, I look at everything as an opportunity. Uh, so, you know, I'm, po I'm positive about life generally and I generally feel that you can you can um, find ways of solving problems and making things work and you know I'm definitely a, a sort of glass uh, you know nearly full kind of person rather than a, a glass half full so you know I think I think um, out of out of being just a generally positive person you can you can make positive things happen what do you think about during your decision making process so uh, so if I if I come up with an idea for a new business um, I don't bring in accounting firms to cost analysis and analyze it, um, uh, you know, because one accounting firm will say it's a good idea, another accounting firm will say it's a bad idea. So if I, if I, for instance, had brought in an accounting firm to say, will Virgin Atlantic work when we when we started the airline, I'm sure they would have said no way. But but I but what I knew was if I could create the kind of airline I'd want to fly on that was exceptionally better than any other airline flying, that it was likely that more money would come in in the year than go, and I'd have money left over at the end of the year. And, and that turned out to be the case because people loved Virgin Atlantic. They went out of their way to fly it. Um, the planes were full. And um, at the end of the year, you know, we ended up getting our second 747 and the end of the next year, our third and fourth 747. And so it grew. Um, so. Yeah, so my whole attitude to life is, you know, if you create a new business that's the best in its field, it's likely to survive. When we, when we took on Coca-Cola, a can of cola, Virgin Cola and a can of Coke, you know, that ours may taste a little bit better than theirs, uh, but we're not exceptionally better. And, and therefore, it was easy for them to, you know, just their share might and their share um, market dominance, they could, they could put us out of business. But when you've got British Airways versus Virgin Atlantic, when they tried to put us out of business, Virgin Atlantic was a much better airline. So, you know, people didn't desert us in droves. Explain how you learned the difference between net and gross. So I'm dyslexic and I was hopeless at school, which is one of the reasons I left school at 15. But I, I, I could never comprehend things like, you know, net, net or gross. And I would just ask people, is, this, is that good news or bad news? And, um, and it wasn't until I was 50 that I was in a board meeting and um, one of the directors said, um, pop outside a minute, um, uh, Richard, you just said, is that good news? Did you not realize whether that was your profit or your turnover? And I said, all right, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd admit it. So he said, well, look, here's a sheet of paper. And he penciled in the sheet of paper blue. And then he put a fishing net in the, in the, um, in, in the blue sea. And then he put some fish in the net and he said, right, the, the, your, your, your profit at the end of the year, that's your net profit. The rest is your turnover, the sea as a whole. You, the fish are not in, the, in your net. Um, and I went, hey, presto, I know the difference between net and gross. <laughs> and and, and so how old were you then? 50. 
Uh, we had the biggest private group of companies in Europe, and I did not know the difference between net and gross. And so ever since then, I've been, you know, net this, gross that. I've been name dropping, <laughs> name dropping the two <laughs> words, but nobody seems to be that impressed because they all, all knew the answer anyway. Um, but um, and the other sad thing was, of course, I, I thought um, I thought that net was the, you know, that gross was the profit and, and I realized I was making much less money than I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, right. um, how does your dyslexia affect you today? I think being dyslexic by and large helps people and, and I know that when kids who may be watching this program and they're struggling, struggling at school will not necessarily agree with me but I mean the great thing about being a dyslexic is um, you concentrate on the things that you're good at and you often excel at those things, and particularly as you get on later on in life. As a dyslexic, I, I had to become a good delegator very early on, so I had to surround myself with great people. Uh, you know, because I wasn't good at, um, uh, at maths or something, you know, I had to find people who were good at it. You know, most likely Virgin, who now employs 90,000 people, would not have been successful if I hadn't been dyslexic. What about when you went skydiving? Skydiving, uh, different dyslexia comes out in different ways in different people, but, uh, but I went skydiving for the first time and the guys thought, they said, I remember him saying to me, Richard, um, you don't need to go down with an instructor, you're, 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 you know, you're a bit macho and you can, you can do it yourself. And um, little did he know that I was dyslexic. So I'm, I'm, I'm coming down on my own with two instructors either side of me and um, the instructor on my right is going, as, I, as, I'm, as I'm doing this sort of maneuver, and the instructor on my left is shaking his head, and I decided to, you know, to like the instructor on my right, and he, you know, he was doing this, so I, I pulled the cord, and um, it turned out that I pulled the cord that actually got rid of the parachute, not the one that opened the parachute, and that's not a great idea, um, and that um, was my dyslexia or whatever coming out in rather a bad way at a rather an unfortunate time. What about when you were a kid? When I was a kid, nobody had heard of the word dyslexia. It's a very strange word anyway for, you know, to, I mean, to call dyslexics because it's a really difficult word to understand. Um, but, um, and I, the people just thought I was thick or stupid at school. I got, I got beaten regularly. Um, I mean, it was a sort of English boarding school thing that they used to do. I, it, was, it was brutal. I mean, they, they would take, I mean, I, w I was at, sent away to boarding school at seven and a half. Uh, you know, you, 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 you were called into the headmaster's study uh, in your, in your um, pyjamas. You had to take the pyjama bottoms down and you, you often beat until you bled. It was, it was a very archaic um, system, um, which fortunately I think has been banned <laughs> finally in Britain a few years ago. Uh, in a story that's since become famous, you're four years old, near your grandparents' house, and your mom pushes you out of the car a mile away. Why? Well, I suspect I was being a bit of a brat uh, in the back of the car, but, uh, but she also was the kind of mother that felt that we needed to stand on our own two feet. Um, and so she, she would do things which most likely she would get arrested for today, but and, um, and I got lost in the fields and, um, and it ended up uh, being rescued by a farmer. She a did claim stuff. she was honking her horn as it started oh, to get dark. Yeah, and I think I was trying to get my own back on her as bit as well. So I was, even, even at four, I was thinking, damn you, I'm going to make you sweat. <laughs> How did you convince your parents to let you leave school at 16? Um, it took three walks around the lawn. So the first walk, my dad understandably said, you know, you, 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 know you, you, you should really try to finish your education. Uh, the second way around the garden, when, when I said I really had decided I wanted to leave, um, he started to mellow. And on the third walk around the garden, he said, well, look, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 21, leaving, you know, college. And um, at least you know what you want to do, you know, go and give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, we'll try to get you a formal education again. And um, they were very loving, very understanding um, parents, and, um, uh, and it was great to have their support. I think it helped that I was so hopeless at school. Um, so I suspect they also felt there was nothing much to lose by me doing something different. How much do you think your mom, being an entrepreneur, helped get you interested in business? 
Um, maybe, maybe it did. I mean, she, yeah, she, she always was trying things. She never was successful at trying things, but she was always trying new things. And I'm sure that some of that must have, must have rubbed off of me. What role would you say each of them played in your lives over the years? Um, my mother was the more sort of dis disciplinary. Um, my dad was more overtly loving, loving father. So I'll give you an example. We lived next to a sweet shop and um, my dad used to leave his loose change in the top drawer uh, his, uh, in his bedroom. And myself, my sister, one day when, when I was about six or seven and she was about four or five, we, we, we climbed onto a chair and we took some money out of the, his top drawer. We went to the sweet shop next door and we bought this enormous pile of sweeties. And Mrs. Avenel rang up my dad and said, um, I think you ought to come to the sweet shop. So he turned up and um, she said, I, uh, I think that, you know, you're, maybe your children have borrowed some money from you. And he looked at us and he looked at Mrs. Avenel and he, and he just turn, turned on her and said, how dare you accuse my children of stealing. Uh, he then left the, left the sweets on the, on the counter, took us by our hands and walked us home. Never said anything. <laughs> and we never stole from him again. Very, it was a very, very, very good lesson. Uh, on another occasion, um, my mother asked him to spank me and he took me into the next door room and uh, he just clapped his hands very loudly <laughs> and, and told me to cry and, uh, and, and he gave me a bit of water and, we wet my, and I went running out <laughs> pretending to cry. Um, so both of them were very loving anyway. You were married uh, once before uh, your marriage to your current wife, uh, Joan, of nearly uh, 30 years. Um, 40, 40 years. Uh, of nearly 40 years. Uh, before uh, marrying Joan, you were thinking marriage was starting to become less appealing to you. Why? Before marrying Joan, um, I had been married very briefly when, when I was very young. And um, uh, she fell in love with uh, a musician and, um, uh, and went her own way. And, um, and I didn't really fancy the idea of being hurt again and, get it, and, and getting married again. And so when Joan and I got together, um, you know, we, we decided just to live in sin and, and have our children not get married. And it wasn't until um, Holly was about um, 10 years old, you know, I'd, I'd just come back from Los Angeles and I, I turned to her and said, um, you know, do you think mum and I should get married? And um, she said, um, yeah, that's a lovely idea. And then she said, you know, I'm not sure she'll have you. So I said, well, do you mind going and asking her? So anyway, so uh, anyway, she, she, she went and asked for me and all, all was good. But a key moment for you in that relationship seems to be uh, you had just come home. Joan was gone. She'd left a note for you on the table, uh, I believe telling you she was pregnant. Um, yes, yeah, so I came home one day and um, to, to find that she was pregnant. and. Um, and, and had left me and just said, if I, yeah, if I want to see her again, to give her a ring. And um, why'd she left you? Because she wasn't sure whether I wanted children at the time. And, um, and she decided she did want to have ch children. And I wasn't necessarily, yeah, ready for children. But so I sat down, thought about it for a few moments and gave her a ring and, and it couldn't have been a better, you know, I mean, men are, men are terrible, we don't, we don't like to be tied down, to be honest, you know, and sometimes it takes a woman to, uh, uh, to do the job for us. <laughs> Given all your professional success and the constant travel associated with it, how challenging did it make it to be a, a present father when your kids were growing up? Do you know, it, I would say that I've spent more time with my kids than most fathers I know. Um, and the reason for that is I'm a great believer in um, delegation and I'm a great believer in working from home so we lived on a houseboat and I worked on the houseboat and, and the kids would literally be crawling around the floor I might be changing their nappy having a meeting uh, so I think I spent a lot more time with my kids than the most fathers and, that, and, and as a result you know we're an unbelievably close family and I and actually I do try to encourage our companies to you know be very flexible with you know, people that work for the company, so they can, they can, if they want to work from home, they should be able to work from home. If they want to work from home on a Friday and a Monday, they should be able to do so. Um, not feel that, um, uh, you know, they, they have to rigidly be in an office all the time. Uh, is Holly and Sam 
your two grown kids now. Um, what role do you see them playing, if any, long-term in Virgin? They're both wonderfully personable. Um, they're great with people. Holly runs our foundation and run, runs it really well. You know, Sam has got his own little film company. He's done wonderful films on the, the war against the war on drugs and you know, breaking the taboo and um, on about you know on trying to sort of campaign to stop the death penalty and other and other and other areas. You know, one day uh, you know when I decide to move on, um, they they will, will be very capable, I think, of together. Um, you know, being a um, ambassador, you know, being the two ambassadors for the Virgin Group, and I think, I think companies benefit from having faces um, instead of just being faceless companies, having you know, having front people, and I think that, I think they'll they can play that role really well. In the remaining time I have with you, I want to talk to you about some political figures you've gotten to know over the years, as well as uh, the the hurricane. Um, but the first being, uh, explain how uh, teaching. Queen Noor of Jordan's family to fly a hot air balloon uniquely positioned you to negotiate with Saddam Hussein and how you went about negotiating with him for hostages. So I got to know um, King Hussein and, and Queen Noor of, of Jordan uh, yeah, through uh, flying them in a hot air balloon uh, over Amman, uh, their capital city, with their children on board. and going across the chimney tops and the people looking up at this balloon and then just seeing their king and their queen and the princes were waving down at them. It was, a, it was a, uh, quite a moment. And then uh, Saddam Hussein was holding some hostages um, to try to avert um, uh, the allies uh, um, invading him. And I was, wanted to try to see if we could you know, get these hostages out. And, um, so I went and saw King Hussein at the Royal Palace, and I wrote a letter to Saddam Hussein and asked him if he could translate it for me, which he did. And he then sent a messenger to, to Saddam Hussein. And Saddam Hussein responded and said, um, you know, yes, if you're willing to come in, in, in one of your 747s to Baghdad, I will come to the airport. I will bring the ill, Ill hostages to the airport. Uh, you know, if you could bring some medical supplies for Iraq, that would be wonderful. And three days later, you know, we, we flew into Baghdad. Uh, it was an eerie, incredible experience. I mean, no plane had flown in for months and months. Um, the lights went on at the last minute. Um, and um, we met Saddam Hussein at the airport and, and he handed over the hostages. And, and as we left Iraqi airspace, there was a, you know, almighty cheer. And, um, you know, when the, when the second Iraq war looked like it was going to happen, you know, I, for one, was vehemently against the idea of it. Um, I thought it was a dreadful mistake, one of, you know, one of the worst mistakes since the invasion of Vietnam all those years ago. And because I got to know Saddam Hussein, you know, briefly, I thought maybe I could try to persuade him to step down and go and live somewhere else in order to avoid the war. And you've later reflected on this being the biggest regret of your life. Yeah. You know, ISIS came because of the invasion of Iraq. I mean, they, that, that, it was the sacking of all those police and all the, all the military and giving them no hope uh, after, the, after the successful invasion of Iraq that resulted in ISIS and all the, all the other horrors that have gone on. The, the whole balance between Sunnis and Shiites has, has been uh, ruined because of it. So, um, so you know, so we, we, were, we were trying to stop it. So. Um, so we asked Saddam Hussein, you know, would, would you be willing to entertain Nelson Mandela coming and seeing you? And the idea was that Nelson Mandela would arrive in, in Baghdad, uh, would persuade Saddam Hussein to leave Baghdad to, to save his countrymen and to save an unnecessary war, and then go and live in somewhere like Libya for the rest of his life. I asked Mandela if he would go, and he said he would go if Kofi Annan, who was then Secretary General of the United Nations, would go with him. I asked Kofi Annan if he would come as well, and he, he agreed to go. And then sadly, a couple of days before they went, uh, the bombing started and the meeting never took place. Um, and um, you know, who's to know, you know, whether, you know how history might have been changed if that meeting had taken place? Um, but. Um, 
But one positive thing came out of it, and that was you know, an idea um, that you know, if these elders like Kofi Annan or Nelson Mandela could have such influence over somebody like Saddam Hussein, maybe we should get a group of elders together. And, um, and Peter Gabriel and myself um, set up uh, with Nelson Mandela um, a, a, a group of global leaders um, who now go into conflict regions um, to try to resolve conflicts. And, um, uh, and the elders started under Nelson Mandela's um, uh, uh, blessing, with his blessing. And then you had Archbishop Tutu running them. Now you have Kofi Annan running them. And it's just 12 incredible men and women who've got the, you know, maybe the, the, the biggest moral authority in the world, the biggest respect in the world of any group of people. And, um, uh, and they've done some fantastic work. Uh, how about the most interesting conversation you ever had over the years with Nelson Mandela? Any time he came to lunch, he would um, try to hit, hit you up for a lot of money for good causes. You know, and he had lots of good causes. So I had lunch with him and Grasha Michelle, his wife, and myself and my wife and children. And we, we got through the first course, the second course, the third course. Um, we were on to the coffee, and I was thinking, I've got away with it. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then he turned to me and said, um, oh, Richard, by the way, Last week I had um, lunch with Bill Gates and he gave me $50 million for our oh, half. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but um, no, I mean, he, he, he was just an extraordinary man who was all, always thinking about other people. Yeah, somebody that I, I, I think the whole world has looked up to. And, um, and Archbishop Tutu has you know, continued uh, you know, to carry the banner ever since with um, a lot of grace. and. Good humor. And you ended up rescuing a lot of South African health, health clubs that were in uh, financial trouble thanks to yeah, uh, so, a, a so, call so, so he rang me up one day. I just got back from South Africa. He rang me up. I was in the bath. And um, he said, Richard, um, a chain of health clubs with you know, 6,000 people working there is about to go bankrupt. I want you on the next plane down. I want you to come and rescue the health clubs. And um, and I did get on the next plane, and we did rescue the health clubs, and, um, uh, and actually it's become one of our success, most successful businesses. Uh, and so now Virgin Active has, I don't know, over 200 health clubs in, in South Africa. So it's the kind of thing that he as a president, you know, not many presidents would ring up and think, you know, he didn't even know that we had a couple of health clubs in England. Uh, you know, um, wouldn't wouldn't uh, you know ring up and say, "Come and rescue these jobs," and, and it was great. Tell about the meal you once had with President Trump. Well, um, it was the first time I'd met President Trump, um, and he wasn't president then. Um, it was back in the '90s, and um, it rang me up to invite me to his flat to have a have a meal, and I turned up, and there were just the two of us, and it was a fairly extraordinary lunch. Um, he spent most of the lunch talking about his bankruptcy, his latest bankruptcy. And um, during the time he was sort of trying to save the company, he'd rung up a number of people and asked them for financial help and how five people had said they wouldn't give him financial help. He then went on to say that it, his life's mission was going to be to destroy these five people. I'd been brought up to look for the best in people, to, um, yeah, to forgive people who, who you, know, you, you feel have let you down. And, um, and in any event, I don't believe that these people had really let him down. They just said no when he'd asked for financial help when, he, when, when his companies were in trouble. So I said to him, you know, I think it's going to eat you up. It um, won't do them any, any good. And um, it seems counterproductive. Um, but but he, he was going to have none of it. And so I left feeling quite, you know, it was quite a strange lunch because um, I was also quite baffled by why it was the main subject of discussion rather than you know, talking about something maybe a bit more worthwhile. When you had a rival television show on an American network uh, competing against his then show, The Apprentice, what did he write in the letter he sent you? Um, well, our show wasn't really a rival, although he seemed to think of, think of it in a letter that he wrote me. Um, Ours was more an adventure-based show, so I would take people to different countries and put them through, uh, to, yeah, really extreme, extreme adventures. And um, uh, but he wrote me a letter 
basically saying, first of all, the show shouldn't be called The Rebel Billionaire because um, I'm in the airline business and I couldn't possibly be worth a billion because, um, uh, because it, people in the airline business you know, never make any money and therefore I should be effectively changing the name of the show to something called something like The Rebel Millionaire or something. I mean, anyway, it was just a rather, rather uh, a churlish letter. And um, so in my new book, um, uh, Finding My Virginity, I thought it would be interesting for people to see the correspondence and um, to tell one or two of these stories because it, 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 you know, it, it shows you know, it, it, it shows quite a lot, I think, about the president of America at the moment. What, what did he subsequently say when you next heard from him in 2015? Um, so in 2015, he wrote to me, um, yeah, congratulating us on Virgin Galactic. And um, yeah, very, very pleasant note. And, um, and your impression of that was what? You know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in making up and being friends with people you may have fallen out with in your life. And I think if it wasn't for the fact that he was running for presidency of America, um, I would have, um, yeah, I would have been delighted to have responded and, you know, but, you know, I was slightly suspicious that, um, that he most likely was sending notes like that to lots of people because he was running for running to be president of America. Uh, but anyway, you know, look, he's done extraordinarily well. So, uh, so, uh, but it's just, I think it's interesting for people to, uh, hear stories and people can judge for themselves about, you know, based on stories like this. Necker, your oasis of a private island in the Caribbean, uh, how have you gone about building the island up over the years and what's been involved with working to make Necker and the sister island you bought, Mosquito, uh, carbon neutral? Um, well, we didn't have any money to do anything with it when we bought it. Um, so over the years, if, if um, the Rolling Stones had a hit, we bought, we'd build one house. If Janet Jackson had a hit, we'd build another house. If the Sex Pistols had a hit, we'd build another house. If Mike Oldfield have, had a hit, we'd build another one, and Genesis another one. And so over the years, we've created a beautiful island. And then, you know, we, I, I spend a lot of time on issues, uh, global issues, and one of them is climate change, and therefore it's very important that uh, that we can set a, an example ourselves, and we have a big array of um, solar and um, and you know wind and um, and you know we're almost self-sufficient on clean energy, and by hopefully by the end of next year we'll be completely self-sufficient, and um, uh, and we're also trying to roll out um, to many many islands throughout the Caribbean and help them become self-sufficient. How many hurricanes have you been in? I've been in one hurricane every 10 years. Um, the first three were extraordinary, magnificent, beautiful. The seas were unbelievable. Skies were unbelievable. The wind was unbelievable. Uh, but the damage was not, by and large, too bad. Um, the last hurricane was um, anything but beautiful. I mean, it was... Um, effectively a category seven hurricane, um, over 200 mile an hour winds, um, and the damage was horrendous. How at the time were you witnessing the severity of it? Uh, I was uh, with, with my team in a bunker uh, under the main house. Um, for four and a half hours, we heard the screaming, screaming wind, and then sudden hush, and then we poked our head out of the door and um, saw the utter devastation that, it, that had happened in those first four and a half hours. Um, and then we realized that we were in the middle of, in the eye of the hurricane. And, and then the winds hit us from the other side and then we threw ourselves back into the hurricane shelter for another four and a half hours. And, um, uh, and at the end of it all, um, yeah, it was, I've never seen any, any devastation like it. You know, buildings that had literally disappeared not one tree left standing. And what we were really worried about was, you know, next to us were all, our, all the people who worked on Necker Island um, in little you know, wooden huts and things. And, you know, later that day we went over there and, and um, you know, people had lost their homes. And um, uh, fortunately, very little life was lost, I think, because it was a daytime storm. 
But the Caribbean people are so resilient and they've just, you know, they rallied around, they've helped each other. Uh, and we, you know, we've got a, a foundation there with, with Larry Page and that's done a lot of good work there. My son's been great. And anyway, everybody, everybody, you know, just rallied around. I think, I, I, I mean, I think one thing that um, this teaches us is the reason that the hurricane was so strong and the strongest in history was that the sea levels were, had never been so high and so hot at, the, at, at this time of year. So, um, and, and this is, the, this is the big danger of climate change is that as, uh, as the sea gets hotter, the hurricanes are going to get more strong and the damage is going to get stronger. And, um, uh, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, we, we're, we're working very, very hard trying to address climate change on a global basis and, um, and, that, and, and we'll continue to do so. So this has been uh, about five years in the making. I uh, n never thought this would have happened, m much less bumping into you uh, in North Africa, only then to a month later be sitting down with you in the Bahamas. But uh, thank well, you very much. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers. After the interview, Branson took me out for another tennis match, this time in front of the cameras where I expectedly was awful, and we got to tag along while he went kite surfing in the Atlantic. You can watch all that on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And if you enjoyed what you just heard, please let us know. A rating and review would be the best way to do that and would help us a ton in continuing to grow this podcast. Thanks again for listening.